volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Hello, and welcome to season two of Sal Sylvester on the future of leadership. I am Sal Sylvester, your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based here in Boulder, Colorado, helping people transform into confident leaders. I'm also the founder and CEO of Coach Metrics, a cloud-based tool we developed to measure behavioral change in coaching and leadership development. Thanks for joining me today to talk about the future of leadership. I was reflecting on an experience I recently had with my six-year-old, Eli. He is absolutely crazy about Legos. And as part of that hobby, he's also found YouTube, where he watches Lego movies and follows other kids building Legos. It's, I really don't even understand it, but it's fun to watch. And he looked at me one Saturday morning and said, Dad, can I start a YouTube channel? Remember, he's six years old. I said, sure, why not? And so he started creating this video, building a, a Lego set, and we did some simple editing on iMovie, and we created Eli's first video on his e-engineer channel. And then he said to me, Dad, now will I get free Legos from the Lego company? And I said, well, you need some subscribers here first, son. And he looked up at me, his eyes, eyebrows are squinting. I could tell he was thinking really hard about how to get people to subscribe to his YouTube channel. And then he said, okay, let's make posters and put them around the neighborhood to tell people to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I smiled and I looked down and responded. I said, well, it doesn't work that way, son. That's not how you build subscribers. And as I look back and reflect on my response, I realized that my response was exactly the opposite of what leaders need to do today, of what leaders need to do to respond effectively in the trends that are impacting our future of work. My response was just another version of, no, we've done that in the past and it didn't work. Or that's the way we've always done it. It's not broken. Why not just keep doing it that way? And I felt like that stodgy old employee who's been around for a while shooting down the fresh ideas and creativity that someone's bringing to the table. A better response to my son would have been, yeah, let's try it, see what happens. At least then he could have learned from it and then adjusted his approach if maybe it wasn't a good approach. The future of work and the future of leadership is going to require people and leaders to be constantly learning. The old days of getting an education and then going to work for your career, that model's done. Education, learning, unlearning, remaining open, according to my guest today, is the new pension. Today's episode is an extremely important one because more than any of our previous episodes, it will help us think differently about how our society and our future of work is changing. And it will give you insights on how we all need to change and evolve so that we can create a society and a workplace that works for more people. My guest today is Heather McGowan. 
Heather is a future of work strategist, the title she honestly says she made up so that she could answer the interestingly troubling question of, so what do you do? After tours of duty in corporate and academic environments, Heather began her career in her current job five years ago. In 2017, she was recognized by LinkedIn as their number one global voice for education. In 2019, she was appointed to the faculty of Australia's Swinburne University Center for the New Workforce, and her latest book, The Adaptation Advantage, is due out from Wiley in April 2020. The bottom line is that we all have to think about the future if we want to remain competitive and if we want to create businesses that will thrive. This interview will blow you away and provide you a better understanding of some of the things that are happening in our society and our workplace so that you can make those adaptations. I hope you enjoy. Let's go to the interview now with Heather McGowan. Heather, as we talked about before the show, our theme for this season is around alignment, Mm -hmm. both organizational alignment and cultural alignment. So making sure people have clear expectations around strategy and what's expected of them. And then culturally, creating a healthy workplace and frankly, a a workplace that's more human. And I'm excited to have you on the show today because I think it's hard to consider alignment if you don't know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And without understanding the trends that are going to impact everyone from employees to leaders to our universities, our educational systems, our boards of directors, we all will need to adapt. So thank you for being here and sharing your insights today. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start with some societal trends. There's a number of things that are happening in our world. You've written quite a bit about technology disruption and income inequality and the gap that's widening there. Social, the lack of social mobility, people living longer. What are some of the things that you're tracking and, and why are those important? One of my big themes is that the future work is learning and adaptation. And it's not learning like back when we went to school where we learned once in order to work. It's working to learn continuously because you're going to cycle through many more jobs across many more industries because of the rate of change. In order to do that, you need to understand how you learn and how you adapt. And, And within that, it's really specific to understand you can't learn if you feel like you're under threat. As you think about it, learning is being vulnerable. It's about not knowing. It's about an exploration of sort of going through some ambiguity, at least the kind of learning we're going to need to do. And so one of the things that I track right now, I have about 13, 14 dimensions of cultural change that are taking place in the U.S., but also in many of the developed worlds. We've got changes in our racial demographics. We've got changes in our aging profile. We've got changes in what a family unit is because 40% of kids are born into single parents in the U.S. We've had marriage equality for a decade. So it's not mom and dad and 2.5 kids anymore. In fact, it's yeah. the middle child's now extinct. Hmm. The change from a white majority to white no longer being a majority is, is difficult for some people. One of the biggest changes I see happening most quickly is around gender. We were fixed in binary five or six years ago, kind of as a societal norm, and now we're becoming decidedly more fluid. In the U.S., there are 13 states where you can option for X on your license up from three a year ago. If you get on the London tube now, they say good morning. Everyone is opposed to good morning, ladies and gentlemen. That's making some people uncomfortable. It's making other people finally comfortable. We have changes in what leadership looks like and who leaders are. We've got changes in 
the crisis of belonging and isolation. We're spending 51% of our time online and the most connected populations are also the most lonely. So we've got all these different factors going on that make it difficult for people to think about who they are, what they do, and where they're from, which are three basic questions. So we've got a crisis of belonging. So that's happening at the same time that we need people to learn and adapt. And I, that's a huge part of our upcoming book, The Adaptation Advantage, is understanding mm-hmm. what that identity stuff means and how that role comes into play around learning and adaptation. Yeah. So you've got all these enormous amount of change at a societal level, if you will. And what are you noticing in the workplace? As those changes happen in society, how does that then trickle out into where we work? Well, there's a lot of sort of freaking out going on around work. I mean, (laughs) focused on, you know, the robots are coming and the technology will change that, you know, it's really taken place over the last decade and how that's going to accelerate over the next decade. Really, when you look at the technology piece, that's actually happening a little bit slower than the shifting societal and cultural norms. So if you have mm. to make a pivot from one business model to the next or change 30% of your job because of technology, if you're freaked out about your identity and your place in the world and how you used to define it yourself and what used to be normal for you, it's hard to let go and learn. And that's, I think, the real crisis people are not talking about. And that's how it's coming mm. in. The workforce. So what do we do about that? We've got an identity that's maybe based on an old way of being, in old, old traditions, past mindsets. How do you make a shift? I think the first part of it is just talking about this stuff. I mean, you know, our last names were based upon our, the industry our, our ancestors were from. I mean, that's what the origin of our last names. So the idea of occupational identity has accelerated over the last three industrial revolutions. So now we're into industrial evolution where we can't and shouldn't enter every conversation with, what do you do? Right. Studies have found out of the UK that the loss of a job can take twice as long to recover from the loss of primary relationship. And a lot of people never fully recover. So that's a sign of, of one of the, the kind of traps we set. We ask little kids what they want to be when they grow up. We ask university students to mm-hmm. pick majors before they step foot on campus and pursue degrees that, you know, 50% of the content in them may be irrelevant by the time they graduate because of accelerations in technology change. And they define themselves. See, when you you meet university students in their freshman year, they tell you they are an X, whatever that degree is, when less than a third of them ever work in the field of their undergraduate major. These are identity traps that we need to stop setting. We need to start Mm. asking new questions. As leaders in organizations, we have to establish psychological safety. There's a whole area to explore there. Um, There's a lot to unpack on this subject. Yeah, yeah, there really is. Where do you want to go? Like any number of those conversations would be really helpful for our listeners. We've talked quite a bit about the importance of psychological safety in the past. We we know that when there isn't that safety on a team and a team environment, people aren't going to speak up. They're not going to bring their most creative and innovative self to to the organization. Where should we go in this conversation? We can go down that track. I'd love to maybe go down some of those other areas, especially identity or having leaders. What what are some of the new questions that leaders need to ask? We can start with the psychological safety one, just round it out because you've just explored it before. One of the points I make when I'm, I make my living as a speaker, but when I'm speaking to audiences, particularly corporate audiences, I say, you know, if you're masking your insecurities of what information you don't know in order to look like the expert, you are signaling to everybody on your team to mask this stuff they don't know. And so you don't find out until it's a crisis. 
So the reality of psychological safety is needed not only in accelerated learning, because if you're going through tours of learning where basically what you're doing as a team leader is no longer just driving productivity, but inspiring human potential and inspiring learning and inspiring the best out of all your team members, you can't do that if you're masking you know, information. If you're not creating that safe space where people can let go, they can fail or flirt. That's a word I used. Re- I learned recently, which is mm-hmm. learning through failure. Yeah. So it's some of the most important reasons to establish psychological safety. Mm-hmm. The other um, dimension that I think is really important, and I've learned the psychological safe- safety stuff, not only from Amy Edmondson, of course, but also mm-hmm. from David Lewis and Alison Reynolds out of business school in, in London. They're looking at are the teams that learn the fastest and are the most successful in dealing with big complex problems are teams that have both cognitive diversity and psychological safety. Mm. And so thought. that's not yeah. just visible diversity, but that's mm-hmm. diversity of thought. You know, you think about it as that person who asks you that annoying question and it sort of annoys <laughs> you because you hadn't thought about it yeah. and you don't have a good answer to it. That's the person you want to keep around because they're checking your blind spots. Yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating. It, it, that is really interesting. We hear so much about, or more and more about psychological safety, but the cognitive diversity piece of it, it's so easy for us to find that team member or peer who's annoying and discount what they're saying or mm-hmm. shut down conversation or, no, we did, we've already tried that in the past. And then we just don't get the best out of people. And in a world where experimentation and iteration and pivoting is so important, we lose out. Yeah, and we have an increasingly diverse world, so chances are good. The customers you're serving are not necessarily exactly like you. And so when you yeah. form a team of people who think like you and, and believe what you believe only, and you go to explore, you're missing probably a huge piece of your market. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it reminds me of an old quote from General George S. Patton, who said, uh, if everyone's thinking alike, no one's thinking at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you discover the cognitive diversity in people? You know, that's a question that I have been asked and I don't have the perfect answer for it yet. And so one of the things I've instituted, like when I do talks, there's usually a Q&A period afterwards. And I say, I want to start off by saying, I reserve the right to say, I don't know, because I'm trying to model model the behavior that we all should be comfortable, more comfortable saying, I don't Mm. know. Or I was mm-hmm. wrong about that, or I've changed my mind about that, because that shows we're as leaders or authority figures or whatever we may be in the role we're in, we're willing to be a little bit ambiguous. So I don't have the complete answer on that yet. I think it sometimes it's listening to the person who asked the question that nobody else is asking, yeah. creating the space for somebody to do that. Some people say you can do it by Myers Briggs profiles, and there's and there's some kind of tools mm-hmm. out there to do it. But some of it is just paying attention to the person who's asking that question that was like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. What did you just say over there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will often find that sometimes it's even the quietest person in the room and it's making space or pulling someone in that doesn't speak that much, but may have some really good insights to share. Yeah. Because often the people who aren't speaking are listening. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Imagine that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so two elements that you're seeing in the research that's out there beyond even Amy Edmondson's work is one psychological safety and then cognitive diversity. Yeah. Where else, where else should we go in this conversation that's important for our listeners? I think there's a lot to explore around identity that we're not talking about enough yet. Yeah. So, you know, even, even to just 
dip into politics for a second, just as a signal. I mean, what happened with Boris Johnson yesterday? So we're filming this in December now. I'm not sure when this is going to come out or what's happening around Trump in the U.S. Look, globally, these kind of authoritarian strongman leaders who, yeah. who are promising to stop change and to bring back conditions that existed before, regardless of what your, your politics are, you have to pay attention to those signals. And I think that's a reaction against change. It's a, it's a reaction against societal and cultural norms that are shifting. It's a reaction against increasing globalization, increasing diversity. And that makes some people very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's really counter to all of the research and sort of latest philosophies on leadership and, and how to create a collaborative team environment where there's cross-functional teams that are coming together to solve really complex business problems. Right. That global strongman leadership figure, is it's not actually inaccurate or ineffective style that works in, in the workplace. Right. Mm. And, and if you look at, like I said, we were just talking before we were on this call, like where we live, I spend part of my, my time in Manhattan. I live part-time in Manhattan. There are 300 languages spoken in, hmm. in that, I don't know how many square miles it is, and there are 8 million people. Hmm. And there are very few conflicts because people are used to being around people who are different than them. They're used to having a mashup of cultures. But when that starts to take place in sort of small towns in different areas across the U.S. or different areas, yeah. of the UK, it makes people uncomfortable. And so we have mm-hmm. to figure out a way for people to be more comfortable. And we have to find, figure out a way that we can all kind of belong to something that's common in society, but also in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So interesting. My wife and I were just in New York. We were just talking about this yeah. in early November of 2019. And we were amazed. It's been a long time since I've been to New York City. I I grew up in Connecticut and had family in in the Lower East Side. But it's been a while since I've been there. And we were blown away by the very positive experience we had interacting with New Yorkers. You know, the stereotype is is one of kind of tough and gruff and, and cold. But we didn't find that at all. People were polite. They were helpful, getting on and off subways. I mean, it was it was absolutely amazing. And never thought about it from the perspective of they're just used to living and working and being in an environment of diversity from so many points of view. Yep. Yeah. And, and everybody's often coming into New York from somewhere else. I mean, there's very many, many people who are actually from Manhattan for multiple generations. There are some, but mm-hmm. most people are coming there from somewhere, whether it's another country or another part of the U.S. And they're like, wait, which way is, I mean, I would give directions. It's frightening because I have a terrible sense of direction, but I give directions every time I walk my dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's always somebody looking to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned belonging a few times now, and we've been really fascinated in my company, 512 Solutions, with the idea of really understanding what humans' needs are and then Mm -hmm. applying those needs in the workplace. And certainly belonging is a really important human need. What are you finding? Right. And I know what one of your themes for this season of podcasts is, is alignment. And it's hard to get alignment when you don't have a sense of belonging. Mm. Um, some of the research that I'm seeing is like the youngest generations are the most connected. You know, they're on their phones all the time or whatever, but they're also the most isolated. So it's not our seniors mm. who are living at home alone, perhaps, is, who are as isolated as our young people who are out in the world, but not in the world. 
And that isolation is a mental health crisis, a physical health crisis too. It's equivalent to something like 13 or 15 cigarettes a day. So while we've gotten generations off of smoking, they now have something that's perhaps worse. Hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, connecting but not connected. Like there's something that feels is, is missing, this personal connection component. Right. Your senior leaders are probably smart, talented, and results-oriented individuals. We also know the hidden costs when those driven leaders don't have healthy and aligned relationships. They lack trust, they avoid productive conflict, and end up revisiting decisions over and over again. Teamwork at the top shouldn't be this hard. And the changing landscape of business with disruptive technologies, culture shifts, and new demands require leadership teams to move faster. At 512 Solutions, we don't run fluffy team building programs. Our holistic and proven process integrates the best of team coaching, individual executive development, assessments, and evidence-based measurement to create sustainable results where we raise the consciousness level of both the individual and the team. As a result, you will have a team that communicates better, collaborates with ease, and increases its agility in dealing with the increasingly complex workplace that is today. This is a program for all executives who care about the future of work. You can learn more on our website at www.512solutions.com. Let's go back to our interview now. So we've talked about so many things. What do leaders do? What are some of the shifts that leaders need to start making in this environment? Well, one of the things that I say is that we're, you know, the slowest rate of change for the rest of your life is right now. Yeah, right now. No matter when this releases, it'll be right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just beginning, it's just accelerating more and more. And it, with that's, when that's the case, helping humans adapt to change is everyone's number one job. It's your number one job as a parent. It's your number one job as a friend. It's your number one job as a coworker. And it's certainly your number one job as a leader. So as we're coming out of the last couple of industrial revolutions, which have really been about scalable efficiency, as John Hagel says, and driving mm-hmm. human productivity, we're now at a point that the technology tools can really achieve a lot of that efficiency. So we need the humans to be more human. And in order to be more human, you have to feel like you belong somewhere. You have to feel a connection. You have to feel some purpose and self-expression. I mean, those seem like squishy words, but that's really going to be what defines leaders in the future and, and, and workers in the future. Yeah. I saw some of your work, some articles in Forbes, and you were citing some of the research that a lot of the, the large consulting companies have quoted around the top future of work skills. And yeah. nearly all of them are, they're exclusively uniquely human is mm-hmm. what you write. What are some of those skills that are going to be more and more important for people and for leaders? It's everything the machines can't do. So while we're lunging at technology and digital literacy is important and digital fluency is important, the stuff the machines can't do are empathy, creativity, collaboration, yeah. you know, th- those kinds of things. And the other interesting thing about those skills is not only are they non-technical, something like 60% of the skills on the list that I track peak after the age of 40. Mm. Because it takes life experience to gain those skills. They're really more about tacit knowledge than explicit knowledge. Oh, we got to dive into that a little bit. That Because yeah. I'm 50, so that makes me feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also even just noticing my own maturity. 
as I, you know, just always on this journey from, for me of learning and knowing way more about myself today than five years ago, probably even right. a year ago in uncovering my own limiting mindsets and beliefs and assumptions about that drive my behavior. So say more about this, because I think this is really a critical component for leaders. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, if you stop and think as, as individuals, just reflect on the way you respond to something now versus the way you responded to something five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. The degree in which you freaked out about something, the degree in which you maybe lashed out at somebody as opposed to stopping and thinking like, well, why did they say that? Why did they do that? What are they feeling? How am I contributing to it? A lot of that sort of simple maturity is a huge part of work. Yeah. When you, and when I talk to executives about where things sort of break down on work, yeah, sometimes it's technical skills. I need someone who with better data analytics or cybersecurity or whatever on my team. But often it's human behavior. Mm-hmm. It's behavioral challenges. And we don't invest in behavioral coaches in companies. If you need to learn a program, there's money to send you for that. But right. if you need some coaching sessions, there's often not money for that. And I'm not yeah. sure why. Yeah, it's a very good point. We find the same thing in our work. It's usually not the technical skills that derail people. It's their ability to remain in conversation when they have competing priorities with others. It's the ability to forge strong relationships. It's the ability to work cross-functionally, stay in conversation, not get caught up in silos, not being overly egotistic goal or focused on your own agenda versus what the organization needs. It's it's the relational skills that become really critical, especially at senior and executive levels of leadership. Yeah. We put this in our book. Um, Travis Bradbury, who wrote Emotional Intelligence 2.0, he has tracked and found that your emotional intelligence goes up as you go from individual contributor to managing people. And then it goes right back down when you go higher and higher up the uh, senior management up to the C-suite. Yeah, And that's not to say that good CEOs have bad social and emotional intelligence. It's just that too many of them have bad social and emotional intelligence because the really great ones have very good social and emotional intelligence. But there's something about sort of removing yourself from the humans you impact that makes people easier and more comfortable at making those kind of difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. I remember that from Travis's book, something like it drops like a snowboarder on a black diamond. I, yeah. I think he uses that terminology to <laughs> on a lot really of ice. bring out that point. Yeah. On a lot of ice. Yeah. It's New England skiing, right? Yeah. So agility, empathy, the people skills, the uniquely human skills. And you also talk about a lot of where people have to change is rapid learning, unlearning, and mm-hmm. adaptation. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Dr. Uh, Jeff Lapine from Arizona State for, for the book as well. And I should say the book is co-written with Chris Shipley, who I could not do this without. So mm-hmm. both of us. But we interviewed Dr. Lapine because he's done a lot of research in how people adapt to rapidly changing environments. He's done some work with the military. And he said one of the things that people misunderstand is they m- misunderstand the difference between flexibility and, ad- and adaptability. Hmm. And so flexibility is I've got all these tools in my toolbox and the hammer didn't work, so I'm going to use the screwdriver. Whereas adaptability is saying, oh, I have a screwdriver, but I really need a chisel, so I need to sharpen the point on the screwdriver and either Mm. forge a new tool or a new process. So adaptation requires learning, which I think is an interesting interesting point. Yeah, 
That's a really interesting distinction. Really interesting distinction. So what are the mindsets that leaders need to adapt to be able to not just be flexible, but also adaptable in this more complex world? So one of the, I use a lot of visuals in my, in my talks, mm-hmm. if you've seen any of them or, and also in my article. I have, yeah. So one of the visuals that I use is an iceberg. And I say that when we look at skills we need or functions we need, talent we need on a team, we tend to look at what's outside, what's exposed from the water, the top of the iceberg. And that's the skills to new. That's the explicit knowledge. That's what we know about. Right below that at the waterline are those uniquely human skills. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people call them soft skills. I don't because it's gendered. Right below that, and those uniquely human skills are, by the way, the things that make you a better friend, better at your relationships, better in your marriage, not only better, it just makes you better with other humans. And then right below that is what I call the agile learning mindset, which is the ability to unlearn, relearn, understand how value is created, how you contribute to that value creation. And I say it has four A's. So it has agency, understanding that learning Mm -hmm. is your responsibility. In order to learn for adapt to the rest of your life, you need to connect to what motivates you. And I think that's understanding some connection to purpose or curiosity. Then it's agility. So it's your ability, your learning agility and adaptability. It's your ability to deal with ambiguity and it's your awareness. And awareness is really important because it's self-awareness and market awareness. So as business models change, the skills you need change. Business model within an organization, you look at a company like Netflix, they went from DVDs by mail to streaming to now 44% of the revenue comes from content. If you remained with Netflix through those three iterations, your job definitely changed. And that's in less than 20 years. Mm -hmm. So everybody's going to follow the Netflix or the Amazon arc. We're all going to have to do a lot of adaptation. Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom of that, just at the bottom of the pyramid is the resilient and adaptive identity. Yeah. That I think we need to do a lot of work on. Mm -hmm. So there's this agility learning mindset. I, I think I read in one of your articles technical skills depreciate, those more agile skills, personal skills appreciate. Correct. I'm, I'm wondering if that's wrapped up into this mindset. Yep, it's included in there. So research by, I quote all the people who do the fabulous research upon which yeah. my work depends. So mm-hmm. Burning Glass did some research into STEM. So we lunge yeah. at STEM skills and they're great. STEM skills are great. We need a lot of people with digital literacy but we've stopped being human and focused exclusively on STEM skills to our detriment. Because if you graduate with a degree in STEM, you get a premium upon graduation, a a salary premium that drops to zero in a decade over your peers. Because whatever skills you learned, whatever technical skills you learned, there's somebody behind you learning the next tool and somebody behind them learning the next tool. So you can never compete with that speed of change unless you add some uniquely human skills. So unless you Mm -hmm. pivot into applying STEM in a new area or into management. So that's why I say technology skills depreciate and social skills and behavioral skills depreciate. Yeah, it makes sense. And it it would also make sense that you'd have to have that agile learning mindset to just keep up just to right. keep up with the technology or whatever new skills are required. Right. And what, what that gets me thinking about is how important that upfront hiring process is for right. companies. Are you just hiring for those important STEM skills or are you also hiring for that agile learning mindset so that 
as the Netflix's companies of the world change, people are also adaptable through those, those cycles. Right. Like if you get, uh, if you're screened for a job at Amazon, or at least this was true last time I talked to them and I don't expect to change, they have 14 leadership principles. So they don't want to know what you did or what your degree's in. They mm-hmm. want to know how you've shown that you have these 14 leadership principles because no matter what job they're looking for you to fill that day, they know by the time you start, it's probably going to have changed. Yeah. So this whole model of hiring for past skills and experience kind of falls apart in accelerated change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what just came up for me as you were talking is a trait of a leader. I would think that is really important. You've talked a lot about vulnerability, but also humility, like mm-hmm. just the ability to say, okay, you know, I need some help here. I, or my skills aren't where they need to be, or hiring someone who's more technically proficient in a certain area than you. There's an element of humility that I believe is going to be really important in the future. Yeah, and I think that humility has to meet with confidence, which may seem at odds with Mm. each other, but they're not. I just spoke to the top 100 leaders of a very, very large company, and I said, you know, it's going to be a challenge to make decisions as things continue to accelerate because in the past, you were the leader because you'd either sat in all the chairs you were going to you manage, even if you skipped over them, you had most of the skills and knowledge. So you can make a decision in certainty. Now, there's so much knowledge flows coming in from the sides and in every direction. Chances are good. You're managing people who have skills you don't even understand. And one of the executives came up to me afterwards and she said, we just reorganized. Almost everybody who reports to me knows stuff I don't know. Hmm. And it was a woman, she said, and I'm having a little bit of crisis of confidence. I said, and I said to her, just because they can do something you can't do doesn't mean that they can do what you can do. Yeah. So your skill is in aggregating them and, and making value and keeping the team oriented and leading the learning tour, even if you don't know every single facet of expertise you manage. Mm-hmm. You talk about some of the distinction between automation and atomization. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that distinction? And, sure. and then I want to loop it back to what we just talked about. Sure. So I say that the future work has three A's. I like alliteration in addition to <laughs> right. mindset. So You're a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. So work that's known and repetitive can be automated or will soon be automated. Work that is discrete and predictable. So that means like think about what you do every day. And if you could hand that work off to another human to do in isolation, and then you could fold it back into your workflow. That's atomizable work. And we're surrounded by atomizable work today. So Uber is atomizable work. Upwork, TaskRabbit, Fiverr, any of those things you use on a gig platform, that's atomized work. It's work broken into a job fragment. And if it's a digital one, it can be done anywhere around the world. And then the work we need more and more humans to focus on is VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, Mm -hmm. and ambiguous. And that's the stuff that we need humans to be working alongside technology tools. And I call that augmented work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And I wanted to just let our listeners hear that distinction. These are important words and certainly for leaders to be thinking about. But also one, one thing that I have noticed is I tend to see people who are in gig roles, contractor roles, doing a lot of work at maybe even some of the organizations you mentioned like TaskRabbit and Fiverr, et cetera, but who are really in those solopreneur roles spending more time, money, investment in educating themselves than I do in large corporations. Yep. 
I think that's true. And I think Upwork did a sur- survey that proved that was true because mm-hmm. it's not the value, I call it the shift between the value you bring and the value you create. So the value you bring is the CV or the resume mindset. Like this is my job because I have this degree in this past experience. And the value create mindset is a beginner's mindset. It's entrepreneurial. It's got an agile learning mindset. It's basically saying, what value can I create today that you need today? Not based on anything I've done before. Yeah. Culture plays a factor in all of this. You talked Mm -hmm. about culture and capacity. Share some of those thoughts with us. Sure. So um, one of the articles Chris and I wrote early on, Chris Shipley, my co-author, was we said you can simply boil a company down to two elements. A company that's agile and adaptive focuses on two things. They focus on the inputs, which are culture and capacity, as opposed to Mm -hmm. the outputs, which are brand and product. Mm. Because brand is just an expression of culture, and product or services are just evidence of your capacity. So again, if you go back to the Netflix example, if they focused on brand and product, they would focus on, did the DVD get there on time? How was the shipping? How was the viewing quality of the DVD? All of those things are really important to the product, but an exclusive focus on that product would have not gotten them to streaming or new content. But a focus on what capacities do we need to shift our business model, get traction and scale. Mm -hmm. How do you define capacities? Capacity is a set of capabilities you need to respond to a problem in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if sense. it's digital capabilities or it's cyber capabilities or it's analytical capabilities, it depends on where your business model is pointed or shifting. Yeah. And, and from a leadership behavior standpoint, the way that we think about it is the emotional intelligence, like expanding that bucket, the ability to expand your level of thinking and consciousness as the complexity of our world changes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Awesome. Heather, this has been incredible. I'm so grateful for the time that you spent with me this morning and tell us more about your book as we start to wrap up and where people will be able to find that. Great. So the book is called The Adaptation Advantage. Let go, learn fast, and thrive in the future of work. And, and we titled that because we think the let go piece is really important, and that's letting go of identity. It's letting go of old ways of doing things. Mm. Letting go is part of learning. We are privileged that my good friend Thomas Friedman from the New York Times wrote the foreword for us. Got 78, I think is our final count, on graphics, so the frameworks I use in my talk. So after a talk, when people say, can I get a set of that deck, or could you slow it down, or could you do it again, you have the book to kind of flip through. It should be a pretty quick read. We try to keep it approachable language, and we're vulnerable in the book. We talk about our own failures personally and professionally, so we get honest Mm. number of expert interviewers from subject matter experts to individuals who shared with us their own vulnerabilities and in, in, in their own adaptations. So it's on pre-order by Amazon right now and the publication date is April 14th. Wonderful. For our listeners, we'll have a link to that pre-order or Amazon on our website and you can find that in our episode notes at 512solutions.com. Heather, thank you so much for being on the show today. Again, so grateful to to hear your insights and excited to keep following your work and see where this goes. Thanks. And I just want to also mention I write for Forbes, so you can look me up under uh, Forbes and I have a website which tracks my speaking activities and I will post a link to this podcast on there as well. And that's heathermcgowan.com. Sounds great. Thanks, Heather. All right. Thanks so much.
I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.